policeman is quite stern and um, you know the bad cop style uh, schoolmaster he's been doing this since 94 but when he steps down legitimately I'm trying to put myself in a position where I'm at least interviewed for it because it's honestly that's that is like I've done lots of cool things on television since then uh, but being the host of Universe Challenge would be like that would be my ultimate dream you're listening to the better stories podcast with Sam Lloyd taking inspiration from our communities and people Hello and a very warm welcome to the latest Better Stories podcast. Now, if you're like me, I absolutely love to read and have been a self-confessed bookworm ever since I was really young. So I absolutely love heading to my local library to immerse myself in books. And someone who shares that passion is my very special guest today, Bobby Siegel. Bobby, how are you doing? I'm really good, Sam. Delighted to join you. Oh, I'm so excited about our chat. Been really, really looking forward to catching up with you. So let's think and reflect of when you were a little Bobby. Mm-hmm. Were you a bit of a bookworm as a child? Oh, but not a, like a book beast. Worm, it, it does uh, <laughs> <laughs> underplay the role of books played. No, no, let's, no let's not uh, diminish the role of the worm. Worms are um, sort of unsung heroes of the economy. You know, they're weaving away at the uh, at the mud levels but no um when i was growing up my dad used to take myself and my younger brothers and my elder brother to east ham library every saturday we had this sort of ritual sam where normally my mum would make a really delicious uh, south indian lunch so my parents are from kerala came to, uh, in india and came to britain in the late 70s so after lunch we sort of full and my mum would say, you guys go and do shopping. So we take a shopping trolley, go down to the high street, but my dad would take us to the library and we'd sort of sit there cross-legged, which I can't do nowadays, uh, sprawled on the floor. <laughs> for hours reading all sorts of books, you know, on the Mayan Central American civilizations, um, on science fiction fantasy, um, books on history of mathematics, so all sorts of books. And, and against the teacher, Sam, now I think, is there a learning objective? Was there a learning intention? What were the three things you wanted to learn? There wasn't any specific objective per se. It was more just to sort of develop our sense of love for learning about reading books and the world. Um, and it really opened eyes because we grew up in a really challenging, um, socially deprived council estate. And there, there wasn't much in terms of material goods as it were but libraries really opened our eyes to what the world could offer and it's that form of escapism isn't it of going to a library and 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 sourcing something that bespokely interests you and i love this tale that you regale about your dad taking you Mm. and your siblings every saturday which became a little bit of a tradition and a ritual within your family didn't it oh yes like to be honest if there was a saturday where we couldn't go you know, the kids would kick up a fuss. We'd like, we'd refuse to eat Mutiny in the sprouts. family. Yeah. You're like, we're not eating our broccoli today, Dad. <laughs> so you'd eventually relent. Um, although we'd always leave in time around 4.30, 4.40 to get back in time for final football score on BBC Sport because we were, you know, West Ham fans. Although usually like, it's, it's strange because the library would be happy and like an idyllic paradise of reading and then West Ham, they'd usually lose back then. So it was always like a contrast. It was always actually supporting West Ham probably accentuated the greatness of the library by contrast. <laughs> <laughs> a mixture of emotions on a yes. Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Tell me a little bit then about about growing up and, and your education because you, you've come from an incredibly hardworking and motivated family, haven't mm. you? 
Yeah, and again, I think in, in my family, I think partly it was my dad's own upbringing because he grew up in India, moved to Britain in the late 70s, early 80s, and he found it wasn't an easy transition. And one of the things that he told us, uh, his four boys, is that, okay, maybe we don't have material goods, we're not financially well off, but one thing in Britain, they do value education, and if you work hard, you can you know raise your levels, you can learn about the world, you can get to the top academic institutions. Even though we grew up on a council estate in East Ham in East London, my dad said, oh, you know, you see that place, Oxford and Cambridge, those universities, one day you could get there if you study really hard. So all four of us, again, probably quite, I don't think there are many people that grew up on a council estate ended up with the story, but all four boys ended up at Oxbridge three of us got scholarships to Eton and not because we okay, I, I don't think we're any like have a sort of particularly innate sense of intelligence but I think it's more just that drive and that dedication and one of the things about cumulative compounding again the same thing with reading and libraries if you every Saturday that one Saturday in itself is not going to change your life but doing it every single week week after week week after week definitely makes a huge difference to your outlook on the world you, your parents sound like incredible uh, role models, leading by example. But I guess it's that mantra that with hard work, anything is possible. And you're testament to that, aren't you? Yeah, I think, again, even as a, I teach now part-time in a school, and the one thing, when people see successes in all sorts of walks, whether you see you're looking at top footballers, you know, Beckham a few years ago with his amazing free kicks, so or you look at a... Uh, top dancer on Strictly Come Dancing, Katya Jones or Ultima Busi, and you'd think, wow, they're amazing at what they do. They must have been born these stars. But actually, all people, no matter what level you are, whatever field, whatever profession, you've had to sort of work hard at your craft. And I think that's the message in my family, and again, one that I tried to get across as a teacher, even as the UK Libraries Champion. Whatever you want to do, okay, maybe you're not going to become the world champion, but you can improve your position by effort over a long period of time and it's something that I practice as well as preach. I love your energy already I mean you're just so infectious as an individual (laughs) but you mentioned Eton there so Mm. I'm intrigued to know you know your education in terms of you know you've mentioned your background Mm. and your parents emigrated uh, you know came to London from India and then Mm. you found yourself in an Eton environment Mm. how did you find that as a young young man? Oh so like I guess let me tell you the story of how the scholarship arose. So I, you know, was 15 at the time and uh, in the Times newspaper, and I can't remember, my dad actually, again, with our limited income, he used to get us a, like the Beano magazine, uh, a science magazine, and it's all of the Times as well. And in the back of the Times, they had an ad that said, are you a bright boy? I'm like, oh, sounds like me. Are you from a state school? Mm, that's me. Uh, would you like an amazing two years? I'm like, yeah, definitely. Uh, apply for a scholarship to Eton. I'm like, oh, I've heard of that place before. So back then, this is 1999, I, I cut out the ad, wrote my name, uh, address, put it in a sort of self-addressed envelope, which young children will not know what they are, self-addressed envelopes. Put it in. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of weeks later, uh, I got a prospectus. Again, did the same thing, sent off, went for an open day, and I was just astounded at the place. At that time, I don't think I'd been to Oxford or Cambridge, so I'd never been to sort of any academic seats of learning. I was just overwhelmed by the sense of history at this place. You know, the 18 prime ministers at the time, the sense of history, been around since 1440, and I was adamant, oh, I'd love to have two years there. And again, when the scholarship opportunity arose and I got shortlisted, it wasn't like people say, oh, was it, you know, lucky day? I'd worked hard. Again, I applied for maths, further maths, physics and history. All my subjects, I'd read around the subject, speak to my teachers, get sort of really engross myself 
and engage what what does it mean to be a mathematician what does it mean to be a historian so by the time my exams and interviews came up for the scholarship i was like a primed mental athlete ready and willing and obviously very prepared and you must love those informative years when you reflect on that that time of your education yes and again i think i remember the one of the first days i turned up uh to eat in on my um so they have a breakfast table in the main dining hall um and the, and you just saw there were some people reading the economist magazine some people reading the financial times others reading the times the telegraph and some kids to be honest reading the sun newspaper as well but suddenly you could have conversations we were discussing about medical ethics and then talking about the state of the economy and some people talking about the football transfer markets and i found myself in a world where we were constantly discussing things having ideas and it really forced me to raise my game because again my friends in my state school were bright and capable but because of the the background and perhaps because people they would have been the first to go to uh, do a levels in university there wasn't the sort of academic background that people at eton had so it just made me like oh i need to raise my game again and then university beckoned uh, so tell us about that kind of period of your education because you went to university mm. and then you became a trader but then you yes. went back to university so i'm intrigued <laughs> to know the yeah. kind of thought process and how that kind of all that came about really in terms of your your career yeah so initially so my my story is not a straightforward again people think about a straight line path to success but so initially i got a gap year ox, uh, offer to study at oxford university to do maths um and i did a gap year before i went to university working for kpmg so they're like an accountant professional service firm in the city and then that was about 9 months and i spent about 2 3 months doing youth work in muir house in scotland and muir house is where the film train spotting is set so it's a very challenging area but again i felt like i wanted to work in an area where i could make a really positive impact and in fact the kids uh they found me really amusing because i had a sort of sort of slightly london poshish accent for what they thought but i was indian short guy 5 foot 5 they're like they found me amusing but i had an amazing an amazing time there and to be honest to this day i still have a connection with the area in scotland but initially so when i went to university i first started doing pure mathematics at oxford university But this is okay. Imagine you're 19 and you've worked hard your whole life, and then the and you know you got your scholarships, you got the top student in your borough to Eton, and then suddenly you're in an environment where you can sort of do what you want. I think I got, I think I, was, I, I carry, I sort of enjoyed myself a bit too much. <laughs> why not? Um, yeah, why not? Um, so actually, at the start of my second year, I wasn't on course for a two-one, and my ambition at the time was to get into banking, to become a trader. And even if you got an Oxford two-two or a predicted two-two, you're not going to get into banking career. So I actually made the dip. To be honest, at the time it was a very difficult decision. At the start of my second year, I decided to transfer. and to Royal Holloway so I went and did maths and economics there but again it, it, it is in at the time it was painful but it's one of those things where now I look back on it it sort of sh- showed me that you can change paths change careers which I've done a few times since then um so I went to Royal Holloway uh, did maths and economics um and I had a sort of started back in 2006 an internship and in 2007 as a trader at Lehman Brothers and I remember when I joined I was like like you know the film Wall Street 1987 yes. with yeah and love I love like, that yeah. film. I like one of my favorite films and I was like yes I've made it you know by town 30 I'm going to be a multimillionaire. I, I I didn't I never thought about retiring at 40 but I just imagine like uh, I'm going to become a managing director by 35 the head of the European desk at 45 global CEO so like my ambitions have never been yeah never been timid. Um and my my peers and my 
environment said, no, no, Bobby, in banking, people change every 18 months. You're not going to be in the same bank. But little did I know that the bank actually would collapse uh, less than a couple of years in uh, and I would have to change. Uh, but, I, in it, but initially, my ambition was still to stay in banking. I worked at a Japanese bank as a trader, still called Nomura, and then uh, took a sideways step to PwC. And I qualified as a chartered accountant. And actually, Sam, I genuinely thought my career would be still finance-based, like as a city financier, or is it one of those, like, I'm going to say evil is the wrong word, but one of the private equity bosses. And that's why I thought my career was heading. But when I was at PwC, I took a mini sabbatical, as it were, teaching new graduates joining the firm. And they're not children, they're 21, 22 years old. But the teaching aspect, I found like, wow, it, it electrified me in a way in which my corporate work didn't. Again, I didn't dislike my corporate work. I, I, liked, I, I was good at it. I quite enjoyed it. But teaching people really captured my imagination. Again, all my knowledge and understanding about the world, about the city, business. I felt like there was a real outlet for this you know i'm using my full hundred percent of my my skill set and that's what made me change my career path from working in finance to actually going back to university at the age of 30 going to cambridge to do my teach training and my masters there it's like teaching was your calling and we'll talk about that and mm. indeed your absolute love and passion for maths but mm. In terms of your TV career and your personality, you got a bit of a taster of it quite early on. Because tell me about your experience with University Challenge, which is another very iconic <laughs> programme. Yes, it is. So, um, OK, a strange confession. Before I went to do my master's, uh, PGC and master's at Cambridge, I had never watched a full episode of University Challenge. I mean, You've heard it first on this podcast. I, know, I love that. I know, what a confession. I know, I know. It's, it's an embarrassing confession. thing is, I've always been, if there was a quiz, like a pub quiz or a general knowledge quiz, my team would invariably win because of the sort of level of knowledge I'd built up in reading and libraries. But I never was one of those people that took part in quizzes. It just wasn't, I don't know why, maybe because I never saw, I didn't see the purpose of reading as uh, to be able to demonstrate proficiency in the quiz. I saw reading as just a way of opening up your mind and being able to have knowledge so you can have more conversation with different people. But then I found when I went to Cambridge, I saw this ad, this post that said, uh, picture of Paxman actually on our, on our pub, uh, sort of JCR common room door. You know, Paxman, do you want to take on Paxman? And I applied, got made captain, um, and then I took it very seriously. Then I did study hard, learn the periodic table, the presence of the US, the Nobel Prize winners. And when I got on the quiz, I was teach at the time I was doing my master's and I was teaching, um, actually I was head of a maths department uh, in a school in East London at the time. So I was doing the master's part-time. My gen Genuinely, Sam, my ambition was I'd love to win the show, that's it. And maybe it'd be quite cool, you know, to you know, to use the the plastic name tag seagull in my class, which actually I did do for a while. Um, <laughs> but then I went viral on the show, which is completely unexpected. And I think it was in my second match where we won comfortably. But I had a match where I was really cheerful, really positive, and I demonstrated like a breadth of knowledge, and it was able to draw in my teammates. And the BBC did a tweet. Um, which I think at the time was the first tweet they did about an individual named person on the show. And they said, is Bobby Siegel the happiest ever contestant on University Challenge? And then the following day, like, the, yeah, I was trending on Twitter. Now, I think hashtag Siegel's number one that evening. I had like, I was on Capital FM. I was in the Metro newspaper. A few like these like lad mags did like, is Bobby the best dressed person ever on the quiz show? And then it sort of multiplied from there like a snowball because there was a, 
another captain on my series for the Wilson Cambridge team called uh, Eric Monkman. And possibly he might be the strongest individual person in terms of pure knowledge alone. And he viraled himself. And I think over the course of that series, both of us kept on trending as it were. And then we faced off, not in the final, but in the semi-final. Uh, we lost, I think, in the final question on a Japanese film called Rashomon. And to this day, that film gives me nightmares. <laughs> uh, I but, bet. <laughs> yeah, we lost in the final question. And then... Um, the day after we were both invited as captains to go on the one show and that doesn't really happen for University Challenge contestants and then it just sort of I think it's where okay so every year Sam on University Challenge there are contestants that stand out and it's just the nature of the show there'll be the top captains the top quizzes a couple of people that you go yeah I remember that captain that yeah I remember this person but I think the difference was I think there was two people at the same time which makes it an easier story but secondly I also being a mature student I was 30 31 at the time or 31 at the time I thought actually rather than just using it as a flash in the pan to go oh, okay it's great to have your 15 minutes of fame as it were I really wanted to use that platform to talk about maths and education and reading and again every time I was interviewed they'd always talk about oh what's it like having your name trending on Twitter what is it like uh, having articles about you I didn't just specifically talk about the immediate impact of inverted commas fame I talked about actually I want to use this as a platform to talk about education to talk about teaching and I think that gave me greater credibility rather than just being almost like a Love Island style contestant that's there mm. for 15 minutes and that I think is part of the reason why my story's gone on and on obviously like I enjoy the inverted comma aspects of fame but I really use it to try to push things I'm really passionate about especially yeah. in education yeah. yeah well at the end of the day you know step aside Jeremy Paxman and oh, here's a Bobby Seagull right? honestly I'm not, I'm not kidding you like so he's been doing it because we had Bamba Gas going from 62 to 87. Yeah, I remember years. those days. He's, yeah. he's a legend, proper legend. And then he's like a schoolmaster, more, uh, I think he's, yeah, he's more f encouraging, whereas Paxman's quite stern and, um, you know, the bad cop style uh, schoolmaster. He's been doing this since 94. But when he steps down, legitimately, I'm trying to put myself in a position where I'm at least interviewed for it because it's honestly, that's, that is like, I've done lots of cool things on television since then. Uh, but, being the host of Universe Challenge would be like, that would be my ultimate dream, honestly. Oh, good luck with that. We'll be supporting you. <laughs> yeah. But after University Challenge, is this how Monkman and Siegel's Genius Guide to Britain came about? Tell me mm. about that. So it sort of happened in a few steps because initially we had, we were both uh, interviewed on the one show and we took on, do you know Riz Ahmed? He actually wasn't, like, he, is, he was famous then, but now he's become super famous because he was nominated, has been nominated for an Oscar uh, in the leading role um, but he was on the show and we did a quiz against him called Quiz Ahmed and we beat him because obviously we revised more about his life than he could <laughs> uh, <laughs> obviously obviously um, then uh, Radio 4 on BBC they asked Eric and I whether we wanted to do a program about the nature of knowledge and learning so we did a one-off documentary called Monkman and Seagull's Polymathic Adventure um, where we looked at yeah what does it mean to be an expert or a specialist and we interviewed people like Stephen Fry which is pretty cool and still is very cool to interview Stephen Fry um, then we published a quiz book originally called Monkman and Seagull quiz book you know amazing branding there <laughs> um, and then the BBC sort of approached us and said we'd love to put your format in a televisual journey almost like QI the knowledge show meets Top Gear so two nerds in a car exploring Britain and we had our first season out in 2018 September again it did really well they commissioned a second season which we actually filmed in 2019 summer but because of like 
various seasons. It ended up coming out in 2019, 2020, start of lockdown. But we haven't filmed season three because it would have been filmed in 2020 summer, but obviously we had lockdown. And then 2021, because lockdown is not confirmed to be completely over, we're still waiting for season three. But that's been an amazing, you know, things. Sam, I had to learn to drive again for the show. Really? Because Eric, because he's Canadian, wrong side of the road. So like, right. Bobby, if that's you don't drive... That's not a good start, is it? No, 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 no. And they said, if you Bobby, don't mind me you, saying. No, no, it's, it's a bad start. And they said to me, Bobby, if you don't drive, there's no show. <laughs> you know, it's not a train show. It's going to be a road trip. So I had to go back and get lessons again. Because even though, Sam, I have a driving license, living in London, you take public transport everywhere. Either you cycle, you take buses or the train. So I'm like, I've not driven in seven years. So I had to get lessons again. But again, my attitude in life has always been, Sam, you can get better. Fine. I wasn't going to be Lewis Hamilton in a, in a Mini or a Micra, but I'm still competent and most importantly, safe. I'm a safe driver. Um, That's the so, yeah, main thing. I, I had to relearn to drive. But again, actually, it's one thing I found is that driving is one thing, but having a conversation with Eric Monkman about physics or the role of agriculture in, in 18th century Britain, that's another thing. I, 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 although I found out actually now, I can't drive without having a high octane conversation. I need, I think I need that distraction. Otherwise I realize, oh my God, I'm in ch- charge of this vehicle and I'm a, I'm a health hazard. So I need a really engaging conversation. Well, I'd be really surprised if you said to me that you couldn't multi-skill. So I'm really, really happy that you can drive and have that kind of level of conversation, which is brilliant. Because you are so infectious and you are so passionate. And and I know you've been quoted as saying, you you know, you want to be the Jamie Oliver of maths Mm. because you are a a huge national campaigner, aren't you, to improve maths literacy. This is something that is very close to your heart. Oh, absolutely. And I'll give you a demonstration of a question that shows the scale of the issue before I talk about the work I've done. Um, so imagine, I'm not going to put you in the spot, Sam. I never do that. I will talk through it. And if you oh, like... Don't. You I'm think, more yeah, arts yeah. than science <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and maths. Yeah, oh, I'm feeling so the pressure now. I, I will talk through the whole question. You can just nod in approval. Um, so imagine someone earns, let's say, £9 an hour, £9 an hour, and they're given a increase of 5%. So the question would be, how do you work out how to work out a 5% increase? And the method is normally you ask people to work out 10% of £9. And I tell people £9 in pennies is 900p. And to work out 10%, you just divide it by 10. So 900p divided by 10... Uh, you can you can you can chuck in if you want to. Nine hundred p. Yeah, it's like you said, ninety p, isn't it? Ninety p, yeah? yeah. And then five yeah. percent is half of that. Yeah, so half of nine. Yeah, so you add it back on, it gives you nine pounds forty five. Feeling the pressure, Bobby. <laughs> Feeling the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. You you did it, Sam. But that question there, or a sample like that, was asked to a pop, sort of a stratified sample of the UK population. And what National Numeracy found was, even if you give people a calculator, one in two adults, one in two adults can't work out that question again if you, if you give them a, a calculator or a phone and that's not because the question is particularly hard but i think when, when you mention the word mathematics or numbers people have that sort of maths anxiety that maths phobia that really makes their heart race and uh, their, their sweat beads roll down their forehead and there's something unique about mathematics which does that and obviously a lot of my work is trying to change that and i and i, I work with an, a charity called national numeracy and their job is it's like Ron Seal. It does what it says on the tin. They try to improve n- numeracy across the nation and their ambassadors include myself, uh, Countdowns, Rachel Riley and um, Martin Lewis, a money saving expert. And one of the things I've done as my sort of 
my my work has expanded. I've roped in people. So this is literally hot off the press. So um, a couple of people that are going to get involved are... Um, so I do maths and dance sessions with Katia Jones. The Strictly oh, amazing. 20 I know, it's amazing. I teach Love her math that. skills and she teaches me dance. I can tell you that me teaching maths goes better than her teaching What's me dance. What's your cha-cha-cha like then? Oh, uh, the thing is that... I, I have a sneaky feeling at some stage that I've been on It Takes Two. Actually, I did Seagull Strictly stats on It Takes Two. So I've, in the next couple of years, I probably might, fingers crossed, get a Strictly call up. But I think I'll, I'll definitely be a, dem- I'll be a demonstration of enthusiasm rather than actual real skill. But well, counting to, does help, especially the help. stuff I like can, the waltz. Exactly. I can, I can count really well. I can, I can theoretically dance. <laughs> we, we'll see whether it translates to the dance floor. But I've managed to get Katya to talk about mathematics to her audiences. And hopefully Katya will become a national numeracy ambassador. And then also I've connected with the Bake Off champion, Peter Sawkins. Uh, because obviously in baking, it's all about numbers and ratios and proportions. So there are two people that over the next few weeks will be announced um, so this is like a sneak preview. Oh, as I love that. Ambassador. So Scoop. I'm using, so yeah, so I'm using my sort of my brand and positivity to draw in people from other backgrounds, whether it's dancing or baking into numeracy. Because again, I think if I'm trying to change numeracy, I can't just use numbers ambassadors. Like people like, obviously Rachel Riley is amazing, but people obviously expect me and Rachel Riley or Martin Lewis to like numbers because that's part of our work. But if you bring in people like Katya Jones, a Strictly champion, or a Bake Off champion like Peter, then you're bringing in different audiences. So that's what I think is trying to, yeah, energise all sorts of audiences. That's brilliant. Because you were involved in a project, weren't you, to teach BBC yeah. News presenters <laughs> math. So what, what was that, that all about? Yeah, so BBC w- w- had this... They wanted to do this mini scheme called the BBC Breakfast Maths Challenge. They they wanted to take three presenters. To be honest, I think apart from Naga, who's uh, Naga Manchetti, who loves maths, they had probably had to like force people to do it because imagine that I can imagine the meeting there. The BBC guys, we're doing a new scheme. We're going to get Bobby Seagull to teach three people to do their maths GCSE again. Uh, any volunteers? And Naga's like, yeah, I'll do it. I'm quite good at maths. And then the rest they're like all looking down at their phones. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, honestly, I. That definitely almost happened. And they asked me to be the teacher. And it was amazing because it was actually my, after university challenges, my first main bit of broadcast work. So I was a teacher in real life to these people, so behind the scenes, marking papers, but also in front of the camera, I would teach them for this mini series. And it's a great way to get parents to re-engage with their maths as well because if they saw on bre- again every few weeks on breakfast television I'd be there we talk about issues that parents have with numbers and mathematics and the importance of maths in everyday life it really gave maths another platform and spotlight and also for me personally it sort of continued my mission where I could be someone that yeah you might recognize from university challenge but this is someone that's using that to try and impact another field. Talking about the last 12 months or so, you've already Mm. alluded to lockdown. It's been an incredibly tough 12 Mm. months um, with the global pandemic. So I really want to talk to you, which is kind of going back to the start of our conversation and libraries and that hashtag better at home initiative, which Mm. I know that you've been very integrally involved in. So tell me a little bit about that in terms of public libraries across the UK. Yeah, so I think obviously... The first impact of lockdown was that all public spaces had to be closed down. Um, and it meant libraries, like any other space, weren't able to stay open. 
Um, and one of the things that I've been doing on social media through my, I've done sort of um, better at home library quizzes, family quizzes, is to tell people, again, I'll do the quizzes, for example, but to tell people that even though libraries physically, like many other types of industry, were not physically open, they were still available as a digital access. Um, and I think it's just trying to use my story about, again, how libraries changed my life. Because again, on Twitter and social media in particular, I often talk about how libraries changed my life. And I ask people, oh, share your stories. And there are so many people out there that have stories of their nan or their auntie or their dad or their family friend used to take them to the library. So many people, Sam, have these stories that they want to share about how libraries made a difference to who they are and in fact the very fabric of their being. So I just try to be a channel for that, a conduit to share and magnify people's stories. And again, working with the sort of better at home uh, campaign is just to magnify these stories and to get people to be aware that, you know, libraries maybe okay, they're going to open up soon physically, but they are still there as digital places because libraries, while they're physical places and they have to be there, they're definitely adapting to offer resources, uh, learning, um, places of focal point as digital places as well. So I think, yeah, trying to be a champion of that cause. The virtual world, isn't it? And it's it's interesting with social media and the significance of that. Mm. And I love the fact that you've reached out to people and, and the kind of stories that people are regaling about their own personal experiences. So they're in the hope when the libraries do open, mm. then it's just going to be a, a wonderful feeling to be able to, from a sensory point of view, to go in and pick up a book. That's what I miss. You know mm. what I mean? I, I, I absolutely miss browsing books because one of the things about being in a physical place, like obviously there's absolutely, you know, society will, will now be increasingly more digital as especially young people get older, but there's something special about being, touching a book physically, opening up the pages, or even the serendipity in a library of wandering around and just seeing what the librarians put as like the book of the week, the book of the month, what they've decided to put on the tops of the shelves. And that's something that you can't quite get digitally. It's the same reason why, even though, for example, you know if you shop online, food shopping, and you sort of pick the same things, but if you're in the shop physically in your supermarket, then you might see, ooh, what's this passion fruit pasta sauce? Never heard of that. <laughs> I might try it out. By the passion fruit pasta sauce is not a good idea. <laughs> I've tried it. <laughs> Homemade pasta sauce, not a good idea. Um, but I, I might think give that a miss. Yeah, yeah, give it a miss, definitely. <laughs> but I think it's a serendipity of being in a place. And again, librarians are these experts who spent their lives in libraries. Talk to them, have a conversation, and you can't do that in the same capacity online. So online definitely has a space and will continue to grow, but I think we mustn't forget the importance of having, Sam, these beating hearts of communities. Because as, as we find society becomes more digitized, um, and communities are a bit more disparate. I think we need these places that are free at the point of access for people together, all you know, the different you know, different socioeconomic classes, different age groups. Libraries can be those places where people can gather and see society in one sort of in one opening of the eye. Here, here, totally agree. Mm. Now you mentioned it very, very briefly, but I'm intrigued to find out more about your new quiz show. Oh yeah, so this is really exciting. So yeah, I, 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 I'm a, I'm a BBC person, but I'm also partial to being offered opportunities from other channels. So this is a Channel Four quiz show. It's called The Answer Trap. 
Uh, so we've actually just been commissioned. I've just come back from Glasgow recently. 31-hour episodes, which people, again, I'm newish to telly the last few years, but people that work in telly tell me 30 episodes is quite a big commission. Um, that is, that is fantastic. Is, oh, really chuffed. So the way the show works is... Um, so it's myself and an only connect champion called Frank Paul and he's absolutely brilliant I almost think he's like a he's like a combination of Stephen Fry and Richard Osman and when you see the show you'll get why I say that he, he's literally like physically like a bit like them but his mind as well and I think we're a great duo so it's hosted by Anita Rani who hosts Country File among other things and so each round there's like two teams of two and they'll take each other on but we set the traps as it were so imagine a category is UK Prime Minister's names and characters from Shakespeare. So on the board, they'll see 16 names, some of which will be legitimate Prime Minister's names from, let's say, the 19th century, and some will be characters from Shakespeare. And they're going to have to allocate, okay, we think Arthur Balfour's a Prime Minister, we think uh, Juliet is obviously a character from Shakespeare, um, and they'll move the characters along, but there'll be four, a few, which are traps. And these are things set by myself and Frank Paul that are neither a Shakespeare character, neither a Prime Minister. So they could be like, a trap where it's a prime minister from Ireland, or it could be a character from a John Milton play. Uh, but they'll be interesting again. So when we reveal, they fall into our trap. They fall into it. We give them a story behind why it is, and hopefully they'll learn something. Although they'll be obviously a bit upset, they've got the wrong answer. But I think it's a show that that really feels like that's something that's competitive. Because obviously there's two teams taking part, but it's something where people will learn with us like we will tell again lots of amazing little stories that come along the way so i have a feeling it's got it's got the makings of being a proper cult not even just a cult a proper classic quiz show i think it sounds fantastic i'll be really looking forward to that because learning is so mm. important to you and i think it stems back from what you said from what your dad did instilling that learning from all those heady days of, of being a young young kid going to the mm. library on a saturday afternoon you love to learn don't you and in fact, I would say what trait defines me as a person, as a human, it's still my desire to keep learning from be it books, the internet, from other people. And I think you need a humility to say, actually, yeah, I might be knowledgeable, but there's so much in the world I don't know. There's so many things I can learn. So my friends might offer to, oh, Bobby, if you know, if I meet up for a drinks or dinner party, this is in pre-lockdown, but post-lockdown, if I meet them up, often people introduce me as, oh, this is my smartest friend, Bobby. But I'll often say, yeah, maybe I'm <laughs> smart and knowledgeable, but I want to learn from you. Tell me about what you do. What is your job? Where have you been around the world? What sort of books have you read? Uh, let's have a conversation. So I think, in fact, I think the smartest people are the ones that admit that they don't know a lot. Okay. Maybe I know superficially a lot, but actually, I think it's your your ambition to want to want to keep on learning about the world. That's what makes I think curiosity, yeah, curiosity and a desire to learn about the world. That's what makes someone special, not just the fact that they know X number of facts. I think it's that curiosity that was sparked to me by my sort of weekly visits to East Ham Library. Well, Bobby, I think you're an incredibly special person. You've already had such a fascinating life and I absolutely love your energy. I wish you all the best for the quiz. We'll be looking out for oh, thank it. Thank you, Sam. Hope it's a huge success and all other future projects. But thank you so much for joining me today on Better Stories. Better is the charitable social enterprise that operates leisure centres, gyms, swimming pools and libraries across the UK. For more information, visit www.better.org.uk or download the Better app. Better Stories, 
taking inspiration from our communities and people.